Welcome back for episode 47 of Self-Signed Artist. Our minds have many ways of playing tricks on us, especially when it comes to creativity. In this episode, we're talking about six different types of cognitive bias and how they can affect your music career. You're listening to Self-Signed Artist, the podcast that helps independent musicians run their brand like a business. Now, your hosts, Kobe Nelson and Jake Mannix. How's it going, everybody? I'm Kobe Nelson, and I'm here once again with Jake Mannix. Hello, hello. How you doing today, Jake? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? good it feels weird to go back to like the intro show banter because we just talked for like 45 minutes before the episode (laughs) feels a little artificial to be like how you doing (laughs) yeah right that's all right (laughs) for everybody out there they haven't heard from us in a week so good to talk about what's going on do you have anything going on this week um tomorrow i've got a mix a big a big mix job to do and that's about it going on this week nothing too crazy nice Yeah, I've got a couple little things going on, but things are finally starting to calm down a little bit. The last few weeks have been pretty crazy, and things are sort of settling back to a little bit more of what they normally are for me. Yeah, you had a wild week. Yeah, pretty wild. COVID reared its ugly head (laughs) and messed up all kinds of things like it always does. So that was (laughs) my last week in summary. Today, we want to talk about a little bit of a psychology topic that I think affects a lot of musicians in their music career. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, just thinking about some of the projects that I've worked on, especially in like a producer or co-writer role in the past. So we've had many episodes that emphasize the importance of self-assessment and also external feedback. We did a whole episode on feedback and criticism. I believe that was episode eight pretty early on in the podcast. And then also, I mean, pretty much every episode that we've done has something to do with some sort of self-reflection. But I think the issue that can arise is that self-assessment and outside feedback only really work if you can actually see your own flaws in your songwriting or in your performance, all of those things take the ability to see your own flaws. I think we all have some basic psychology that's sort of working against us anytime we try to do that. So that's what we kind of want to have an episode about today is cognitive bias. The things that you kind of unconsciously do to convince yourself that something is true even when maybe it's not. And I think that these are things that can often cause you to shoot yourself in the foot a little bit when it comes to business. I know every single one of these things that we're going to talk about is something that I've fallen victim to before uh, in some area of my business. I don't know, Jake, looking over these, if this is anything that you've struggled with too? All the time, every single one. There's one, there's one that caught my eye that is near and dear to my heart, but... (laughs) We'll get there. Yeah. All right. So we'll we'll go through these and make sure that uh, you out there listening aren't falling victim to all these cognitive biases as well. Cognitive bias often prevents you from seeing your own flaws. If you're assessing yourself, your biases might cause you to either grade your work more favorably 
or simply not see that something's not working. See, not be able to see that there's a flaw in what you're doing when you're assessing yourself. But I think the same thing is also true for outside feedback. If you're looking for outside feedback, your bias might cause you to discount any criticism that you get. Somebody will give you some honest feedback, maybe a suggestion, and your bias will cause you to, you know, think in your head, oh, that person, like, they don't know what they're talking about, or I've already thought this through, like, I've got it all figured out, I'm going to go with what I had originally, something like that. Um, So that's kind of what we want to cover today. There are six main types of cognitive bias that we want to cover today, and really, I mean, there are many, many more, 50 plus maybe types of cognitive bias. So if you're interested in that afterwards, you can go and look up many, many more. But we've kind of narrowed it down to the six that are most applicable to a music career as an artist. And I think if you aren't aware of these things working in the background in your mind, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot over and over and over again and really never be able to reach your full potential as an artist. So we're trying to avoid that here. We're trying to make you aware of the way your mind might be working against you. So before we actually dive into the individual types of bias and and go over how they work and how to avoid them, I just want to list off the six that we're going to talk about. So the six types of bias that we're going to talk about are confirmation bias, self-serving bias, availability bias, spotlight effect or spotlight bias, choice supportive bias, and then finally, familiarity bias. So these are all different ways that your mind will play tricks on you and convince you to do things a certain way when maybe that's not the best option. Jake, had you heard of any of these before? Like, are any of those familiar to you prior to this episode? I've heard of... The confirmation bias, I've heard of self-serving bias and availability bias sounded familiar, but nothing too, nothing too crazy. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, these are not original concepts to us, obviously. These are things that come up a lot in just personal relations and things like that, the way you deal with people. I know my first introduction to some of these cognitive biases was in like work training, like in a company talking about like how you interact with other people and how you might assume certain things about a situation that you're in and stuff like that. So these all kind of come from those things, but we're going to try and connect them back specifically to the creative process and how you actually make music and handle your business. So the first one that we're going to cover is the one that I think is probably most familiar to people out there that they've heard of before. And that's confirmation bias. So this is a really, really common one that crops up all over the place. And what it is, is when you look for information that supports what you already believe. So if you hold some belief, you're going to look for information that confirms that belief. And you're going to kind of, (laughs) I guess the flip side of that is you're going to actively try and avoid any information that is going to conflict with your belief. So, I mean, this is something that you've probably heard about with news and social media. Like this is a big thing in like politics and stuff like that. And I don't want to get into any of that, like where you're, you're only listening to a certain news station or something like that. 
because of confirmation bias. It, it kind of feeds you the information that confirms the things that you already believe. But I think this is also something that is really important when it comes to searching for feedback on your work. And I want to get your take on this, Jake, as somebody who who I think does this really well and doesn't fall victim to confirmation bias. Um, but I think when people go about asking for feedback, a lot of the time they look for somebody who they think is going to give them positive feedback, who's going to tell them that they did a good job. So like the classic example of this, like looking for uh, positive feedback of confirmation bias would be like asking your mom if your song is good. You know yeah, what I you mean? you don't want to do that. Like, you know, your mom is going to be like, oh yeah, it's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. That's confirmation bias at work. That's you chose to ask your mom because you knew you were going to get confirmation. I don't know, Jake, is that something that you think about when you're asking for feedback? Because I know you kind of like spread, you spread the requests out among a lot of people. I do send out the mailer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, I send it to people who I think will understand the song and understand what I'm going for and still be able to say, here's maybe what you could do better mm. or change up or whatever. Right. Yeah. So I, I think that's the right way to go about asking for feedback. And the, I think the way that, I mean, the mom example is kind of an extreme example, but I think there are a bunch of other layers to this that people can fall victim to as well. So like asking your best friend might be an example of confirmation bias at work. Like your friend is going to be more likely to, I don't know, feel some sort of emotional resistance to giving you like harsh criticism, even if maybe that's what needs to happen for you to improve what you're working on. Even that's kind of an extreme example. A another example that I think is probably most common is when an artist will reach out to somebody who's maybe lower, I don't know, as far as experience goes, a less experienced artist looking to them for feedback, kind of thinking in the back of your mind that that person is probably more likely to give you positive feedback. If you're more experienced than them, they're more likely to be like, oh, wow, like that, what you did is really amazing. I could never do that. I'm I'm not at that level yet. So they're going to give you positive feedback. I think a lot of people do that. They won't send it to the person who they're like <laughs> scared of, you know, like the they're scared of their opinion or scared that they're going to think the song is trash. Yeah. They're going to send it to the person that they think is going to be impressed by it. I mean, but also, also don't, you don't want to send it to, someone who just straight up doesn't like your music. Like I have people right. that are like in my friend group or friends that just straight up don't like the kind of music that I make. So they're never going to like it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, it, if it's like a genre thing, that makes total sense. Like you don't want to send it to somebody outside of the genre who doesn't know anything about that style of music or anything like that, who won't be able to make a contribution to it. But you just want to be on the watch for yourself like are, are you sending this to people who you think are going to confirm that you've done a good job or are you sending this to people with the actual purpose of getting constructive criticism getting feedback that's going to help you improve that's not all going to be positive so i mean i mean this if we're looking at how to avoid this and get around confirmation bias I think the first thing that you need to do is acknowledge 
what you believe or what you are hoping for out of a situation, you know? Like, are you hoping that somebody's gonna hear this synth part that you created and say, wow, that's the most amazing thing in the world? Because if you if that's your hope, chances are your confirmation bias is going to like steer you in the background towards sending your song to those people for feedback. It's that little unconscious pull that will will cause you to go in that direction. So I, I don't know. I think a good way to get around that would be to actively look for a devil's advocate, for somebody who you think might push back on something or that you think might have a strong opinion about something. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to take that advice. This is something we talked about in our feedback episode. So I don't want to I don't want to go too deep into it. And then I think the last way that you can kind of get around confirmation bias is just to make sure that you're asking people for feedback who are slightly more experienced than you. At least some people who are slightly more experienced than you. Just so that you don't get into that area of asking people who are just going to be impressed because they're not at that level yet. Yeah, 100%. Because I think of it like maybe maybe like a bird's eye view. Maybe they'll they'll catch something that, that you wouldn't have um, because they know to look out for it or they're just not seeing it from where you've been seeing it for the past however long you've been working on it. Right. They're not there just to confirm that you're amazing. They're going to actually try and help you <laughs> right. by providing you with information that you don't already have. Absolutely. So that's the first one. And I think the most, one of the most common ones, even outside of music, confirmation bias. The second type of bias that I want to talk about is another kind of common one in general life, but I think it's especially common for music careers specifically, and that's self-serving bias. So self-serving bias is when you think that all good things that happen to you are because of something that you did. And on the flip side of that, that all the bad things that happen to you are because of some external factor outside of your control. Something just happened and it wasn't your fault, but like it's put you in this situation that's undesirable, that's bad. So I, I think an example of this for an artist, and I'm sure we could think of uh, different examples. Maybe you can think of a better example, Jake. But an example might be believing that the song that you put out that got 100,000 streams on some playlist was only because of your writing and performing skills. But this other song that you put out that only got 2,000 streams was because, you know, the whatever, the playlists are in the back pocket of the big record labels or, I don't know, the <laughs> some other excuse, some reason that they didn't support you yeah. and not that the song wasn't as good. Yeah, I would say that I feel like everybody has to know at least one of those people. Yeah, somebody who makes excuses for all the bad stuff. I mean, I I'm that person a lot of the time. I oh, find yeah. myself doing that a lot in my own business like if whatever, if I get a bunch of mix clients or a bunch of like quote requests or something like that for mixing, I'll be like it's because my portfolio sounds really good or whatever. And then like if I'm not getting a bunch of those I'll in my mind, I'll be like, well, you know, like the, it's COVID and like they're not making as much music as they are right now um, because of all these things that are happening. And like, I don't know, the economy's bad. And, you know, like you make all those excuses for external things that are the reason why things aren't happening for you the way you want. You know, yeah. it's so easy to do that. 
don't know. Do you find yourself in that at all, Jake? Dude, all the time. All the time. You have to because, I don't know, because here's the thing. Like, you can put the blame on anybody else or anything else or whatever, but, like, the progress happens when you realize that sometimes you're the issue. (laughs) Right. And you got to get out of your own way. (laughs) And sometimes the success is an external factor, like, I don't know, luck even. Or a culmination. Yeah, a culmination of a lot of things and people. Right. There's many factors to everything. So yeah, I think I think if we're looking for a way to get around self-serving bias, it's to realize that like ultimately you are responsible for your brand. Period. Like you need to own both the successes and the failures and then also realize that there are a lot of factors outside your control that contribute to both. Like your success is probably partially on the shoulders of somebody else if you're succeeding. Same might be true for if you have a failure. Like maybe it's not all on you, but there's you can't divide it up into one of those two things. You have to realize that your brain wants to do that, wants to say, I succeeded because I did these great things or I failed because the world is out to get me. That's your self-serving bias. So, I, I mean, I guess this isn't to say that, like, when good things happen, you can't pat yourself on the back, but you just have to, at that point, know that other factors play a role, and then the same goes for bad things. You have to focus a little bit inward when something bad happens or something doesn't go according to plan and ask yourself what you could have done differently. Don't place all the blame externally. So that's self-serving bias. I think that's one that a lot of people are going to catch themselves in fairly often. It's kind of like the, um, there's a saying that like, this too shall pass. I I don't know if it's from a religion or what. I don't even know where I've heard it, but like. I, I have that tattooed on me. Do you? <laughs> I do. Yeah. So do you, do you know the origin of it or? Am... No, I do not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I don't either. So, but like, it's a, a concept that it's good, a good thing to live by. When good things happen, this too shall pass. When bad things happen, this too shall pass. So this is kind of the solution to self-serving bias, I think, is just knowing that both things are true. All right, so let's move on to the third type of bias, and that is availability bias. And this one is one that may be less familiar for people. Um, I think this is talked about a little less than some of the other ones, but it's an important one for songwriting. And I think it's one of the biggest things that causes artists to make like generic sounding music or music that really doesn't have anything original to it. So availability bias is our tendency to kind of reach for whatever information or idea is the easiest for our brain to access. That takes like the smallest amount of effort to come up with. So our our brains don't like doing work. <laughs> We're looking for the easiest path to any end goal. And when it comes to songwriting, oftentimes I think for people, the thing that they end up going with is just kind of whatever comes to mind first, whatever's the easiest to sort of, you know, pluck out of the ether and drop into your song. So an example of that would be when you're songwriting and you kind of continuously reach for some melody chunk that you use all the time, or 
a common chord progression that's used in a bunch of other songs that you've heard. Things like that, where you're just sort of plucking the things that are the most obvious and the easiest to access. The most available. That's where availability bias comes from. Does that make sense, Jake? Yeah. So it doesn't take much effort to do those things, to go for the easy solution, because you always do them. You know, like they kind of come instinctively because of that. If it's a melody chunk that you always reach for, of course that's going to be the first thing that always comes to mind. So availability bias would lead you to believe that those are the best ideas. That just because it's available, it comes to mind easily, it feels natural, that that means that it's good or the best. I would say that I almost have the opposite of that. Really? Yeah. Like general songwriting? Yeah. Like anything, like I feel like everything that I come up with first, I'm like, ah, I don't like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I think that's good to be skeptical of the things that come to mind first. Where I think this kind of gets like people into trouble though, is that they always want to come back to the thing that they thought of first. Do you ever find yourself doing that? Like where maybe at first you say, oh, this isn't good. And then you, whatever, spend an hour trying to hash out something different. And then you come back to the first thing that came to mind. Uh, I, I don't recall ever doing that. <laughs> okay. Well, for me, so for me, I think that's something that I did have an issue with when I was writing music a lot, especially like the melody chunk kind of concept. Like I would return to these same not the same melody but like the same little i don't know two or three note four note like little patterns and stuff like that that would start to make all of the melodies sound similar so i would just look out for that in your own music i guess just to throw out a random example of that like say you go a lot to like alternating between two notes in your melody, like or whatever it is. Um, like that's something that you reach for a lot in melodies. If you analyze all your melodies and see that come up a lot, that might be a an indicator that you are kind of falling into your availability bias a little bit more than you should, where you're kind of reaching for those instinctive things. That might be something to look out for. Listen over your melodies, kind of think critically about the rhythms that you go to all the time or the rhythms that are in most of your songs and just see if there are any patterns that come up again and again and again and be aware of that. That the reason that that might happen is availability bias. Those things come to mind easiest so they end up in your songs all over the place. And I think the best way to get around this is just to go listen to our recent episodes on getting out of a slump and also on evolving as an artist. There are strategies in both those episodes that I think will help you set boundaries to keep you from going to these easy things over and over and over again. So I would definitely encourage you to go back and listen to those. Those are episode 45 about creative slumps, and then the previous episode before that, episode 44, about evolving your sound and your artist brand. So go check those out, and I think that will give you some good strategies. All right, so moving on to number four, and that is the spotlight effect or spotlight bias. And I think this is one that is going to feel kind of personal to pretty much everybody. Like, if you've ever been a middle schooler, 
I feel like you're going to know this one all too well. (laughs) So spotlight bias is the tendency to feel like everybody is more aware of you than they actually are. Oh, yeah. I know that this happens to me like in public all the time. I don't know about you, Jake. Oh, big time, dude. If I'm walking into Target, Walmart, anywhere, and there's anyone outside also, I start trying to think of like how I'm walking. I don't know. I like forget how to walk. I forget how to walk is what happens. Yeah. And you feel like everybody is noticing that you walk funny. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Now all of a sudden you don't remember how to walk correctly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I a hundred percent relate to that. (laughs) And I think that that's kind of, That's why I was talking about like anybody who's been a middle schooler, like this spotlight effect, spotlight bias sums up my middle school experience where anything that I wore or anything that I did, I felt like everybody was noticing when in reality, yeah, in reality though, like everybody else is feeling exactly the same way and they don't notice anything like in retrospect, I don't think anybody cared about anything that I did in middle school. I wasn't like a popular kid or anything like that. Like literally nobody was paying attention. Dude, I (laughs) barely remember middle school. (laughs) Right. And I, and I don't remember what anybody else did or said or wore in middle school. So yeah, I don't know. I think that this one plays into music quite a bit though. Um, and, and really it comes into play with perfectionism So like we tend to think that everybody's going to listen to our music the same way that we listen to our music that we've created. So like we obsess over these tiny little details, like, I don't know, trying to dial in layer number 20 of a synth part or something like that, or tweaking a guitar tone for four hours, trying to get it like just perfect when you're making minuscule changes that nobody would even notice. Like if you played it side by side, Nobody would notice, but that's your spotlight bias, your spotlight effect. You feel like everybody's going to take notice of that thing. Does that ever happen for you, Jake, in your writing or producing or anything like that? Or do you find that with clients ever? All the time, all the time. And I have to remind myself too, and, and clients just that, you know, people, and you said it earlier, people aren't good. I think you said it earlier. People aren't going to hear hear the the song the way that you're hearing it. Right. Every, they're not going to hear every little layer that's in there. And sometimes um, artists get too wrapped up in that and you got to give them a, a little reminder and, you know, myself included. Yeah. And as a mix engineer too. You oh, know, yes, we get We sure. get caught up with the decimal points just as much as anybody else. <laughs> a, B, I, can, I do this all the time. You're A, being back and forth between like boosting a frequency by one decibel and 1.2 decibels. Mm. <laughs> You're like, which one, which one is just the right amount? And it's like, literally nobody is going to hear that. I can't even hear it and I'm A-being it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, one example for me that I've witnessed that I always kind of think back to on this is uh, in my days as a tracking engineer, I once sat through recording literally 160 takes of a guitar solo with a guitarist, a pretty no, well-known guitarist from a pretty well-known band, who I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna mention who it was, but this person never liked any of those. And like from my perspective, not being them, 80% of the takes were exactly the same, like exactly the same, completely interchangeable and 
perfect. Like nothing wrong with them at all. But the guitarist just kept wanting to go over and over and over and over again. And it was just to the point where like 160 takes of a guitar solo, nobody would have noticed the difference if we had taken take 20 or if we had taken take 120. Like I couldn't tell the difference and it was my job to sit there and try and tell the difference. <laughs> so like spotlight bias made this guitarist feel like people would criticize the solo. I, I mean, the band was a very guitar focused band. That was a, a big part of kind of their whole image and deal was that they have really intricate, really technical guitar parts. So I, I can see where that came from. But in my mind, that was really all just about this spotlight effect and the bias that goes along with that. So I always try and think of that when I, like like in the mixing situation that you were mentioning before, when I want to go down the rabbit hole and like just tweak and tweak and tweak until something is 100% perfect, those are the times where I'm like, I have to take a step back and realize that nobody is going to hear that and that's okay and move on. So I, this bias is just, it's something that causes us to think that people care about what we do more than they actually do care. I think that sounds bad, but that's really the truth. Like if you put out a song and it doesn't do as well as the last song, does anybody really like actually care about that? Like, are, are they not going to listen to your next song because you had this past song that flopped or something like that? Like probably not. Like we put a lot more pressure on ourselves in that situation than an audience does. So I, I think that can just cause artists to not take any risks and as a result kind of make boring and predictable quote unquote art where it's it's less artistic. Yeah, I agree. So as far as strategies to get around spotlight bias, I don't think there's really a magic bullet here or a single thing that you can do to get around it. You just kind of need to realize that like everybody else out there is more worried about themselves and that they all have spotlight bias as well. Like kind of like the middle school example. I don't remember anything stupid that anybody else did in middle school. I'm just laughing because anytime, <laughs> anytime I've told someone, you know, like an older person than me that I feel insecure or whatever, it sounds exactly like what you're saying right now. And it's so true because all <laughs> you have to do is not care. Right. <laughs> but that's a hard thing to do. It's so hard. Yeah. I, I think for me, like now that we both have kind of come to the conclusion that we both like walk around a store feeling like we walk funny, I'm just going to be in the store all the time thinking about how everybody around in that store, that store is probably filled with a hundred people that I'm like, why do I not remember how to walk normal right now? I wonder if at everybody least, else is looking at me. Yeah. <laughs> that's got to be such a common thing. And I think the same thing is the case with music man, that one out of place note or whatever it is, or I was a little out of tune here or something, or I don't know, the synth doesn't sound exactly how I pictured it in my head mm -hmm. and that somebody's going to notice that. And that's just not the case. Right. I think the last thing that you just need to realize when it comes to this and spotlight bias is that you need to understand that you know your work way more intimately than any listener is ever going to. Even a super fan like the fact that you've created something and you've heard it kind of stripped down to its bare bones, you've heard all the parts soloed out maybe if it's a recording, like you know it way better than anybody else does. So you're always going to be able to find that thing that 
makes you feel insecure. That's just kind of what goes along with making art. So you kind of have to learn to embrace that feeling and embrace the kind of feeling of risk associated with putting something out. And now let's move on to number five, which is choice supportive bias. For me, I think this is one of the types of bias that inspired this as an episode topic. So choice supportive bias is our tendency to feel better about something that we chose simply because we chose it. Like even if that choice has flaws, like from an objective outside perspective, if there's a flaw with that choice. Since we chose it, we feel good about it. We feel like it's the right choice. Again, this isn't something that's only specific to music. This might be, I don't know, a product that you bought. Like say you were trying to make the choice between getting an iPhone or an Android. Like if you chose an iPhone, chances are you're probably going to be more pro iPhone. You're going to think that iPhones are better than Androids because that's the choice you made, you know? Like, I think that's something that comes up a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that comes up far too often because it's obvious. (laughs) (laughs) To you because you're an Apple person. (laughs) 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 But yeah, I, I, I mean, that's how we get divided up into these like camps of people who support certain things that are like on an objective level. There's really not that much difference between them. I mean, it's personal preference stuff. It works for both groups of people. So like all that comes down to choice supportive bias. You believe that one thing is better because that's the thing that you chose. When I've been in a producer or co-writer role for like another artist or a band, this is something that I see pop up over and over and over again, especially when it comes to writing music. So like an artist may have written a lyric, for example, that really like doesn't make sense. Like if you were to try and read this as a lyric and try and make sense of it, whether from a story perspective or or just from a words put together, making sense kind of perspective, like it doesn't work. I might point out the flaw and offer a solution, or I might even offer several solutions, several choices of solutions. And the artist will refuse to change anything about it kind of refuse to acknowledge that there's something about it that doesn't make sense. And I I had, so this also happens with like melody and stuff like that too. I had one situation where there was an artist I was working with who had notes in the melody of the song that were really clashing with the notes and the chords in the other instruments, like stuck out as clashing. And I, I found it like pretty obvious And I thought that even a general listener, somebody who didn't know much about music might hear that and say something about that doesn't sound quite right. So I pointed this out and we had a conversation about it. I even got to the point where I played the clashing notes together on the piano. Like I was playing the melody notes with the notes in the chord that were clashing and the artist like made a disgusted face. Like, ugh, that sounds wrong. But they still wouldn't change the notes of the melody or the notes in the chords. So to me, that's like a clear example of choice supportive bias at work. It's that idea that since I made this choice, this is what I wrote, this is what I'm going to stick with, even when there's evidence to show that that might not be the best choice. I don't know, Jake, if that's ever something that you've caught yourself doing or if there have ever been artists that you've worked with that have done that. I think this is one of those things that's really hard to catch yourself in. The number one place I find it 
is with drummers and programming drums. Mm. For sure. How so? They just want to drum on the song. It doesn't matter if it's not going to sound as good. doesn't matter if they're not going to play as tight as MIDI. Mm. You know what I mean? They just want to play on the song, and that's fine. It's a choice. It's that a was choice. Me. I wanna, it's a choice. Yeah. <laughs> Unwilling to look at something from an objective perspective and say, okay, maybe it would be better for the song yeah. if we program these drums. That's That's a great way to sum it up, but ultimately not wanting to make the best choice for the song. Right. Because they've already made this choice for themselves yeah. or whatever. Drum, position aside, guitarist, vocalist, whatever, keyboard player, producer, goes for everybody. Right. Yeah. I think that's a good example. I mean, I, this is something that comes up in a lot of situations. And like that's an example outside of songwriting. I think there are other examples outside of songwriting as well. Like this could even come down to like people you hire in your team. So maybe you hired somebody for your team and they aren't really working out choice supportive bias may cause you to keep that person on the team for longer than you should just so you don't feel like you were wrong. You don't feel like you made the wrong decision hiring that person. Or maybe this is a big one. Maybe you signed a deal that turns out to be bad. Choice supportive bias may make you feel like it was a good choice even when there's negative stuff happening. There are there are objective or there's evidence to suggest that this wasn't a good choice. It can make you feel like it was a good choice for longer than you otherwise would until things ultimately like blow up and everything goes wrong. So this is something to look out for. Just because you made a choice doesn't necessarily mean it was the best choice. And you just have to realize that your brain is going to want to feel that way. It's going to want to feel like the choice you made was the right choice. So how do you get around choice supportive bias? I think, again, this is something that doesn't have a magic bullet solution, but you just have to consciously not get married to any one thing that you've chosen or any single idea. Like you have to be prepared to throw out any idea or backtrack if something's not working the way you hoped it would. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I have a hard time with that for sure. Same. When, especially when, yeah, writing my own music and someone has a suggestion on like the instrumental when I'm writing it though. You know what yeah. I mean? Not when I'm sending it out for critique, like when I'm writing it. Mm -hmm. Oh man, I'm so stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a normal, a normal reaction to something. Like you made a decision, you made a choice. Your brain wants to feel like that was the right choice. Right. So, I mean, I guess the solution to that is that when you get feedback, listen. You don't, it doesn't mean you necessarily have to go with that feedback or like make a change that somebody suggests, but like actually listen to it and know that your brain isn't going to want to change something that you made a choice on. So just knowing that might help you to be a little bit more objective and actually evaluate whether the choice you made was the right choice. So I guess that would be the overall advice for choice supportive bias. Just listen to feedback and use that to assess your own choices. All right. And then moving on to our final type of bias, number six, and that is familiarity bias. This one's a real doozy. And <laughs> I feel like this often masquerades under a different name that studio people will probably be familiar with. But I don't know, as an artist out there listening, maybe you haven't heard of this before. 
but studio people will all know this under the name demoitis. That's something that you've heard of Jake before, oh right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. So familiarity bias is our tendency to perceive things more favorably when they're familiar to us. So if it's something that we know really well, we'll see it as a good thing. And then vice versa. We might perceive things that are unfamiliar in a less favorable light. Like if it's something we've never heard before, our initial gut reaction to it might be negative. I mean, this is something we've talked about a little bit before in the podcast. And and demoitis is the classic example in the studio. So demoitis is when an artist or a band will make a demo of a song and then during the actual production and recording process for the you know actual record, it all becomes about trying to recreate the demo, trying to achieve the same thing that you achieved in the demo. So artists might say things like, uh, you know, can we get the guitar tone to be more like the demo? Or I like the melody we had in the demo better. Let's go back to that. Or we can't get rid of that harmony part in the vocals because that's my favorite part of the demo. You know, like always referring back to the demo as the gold standard that we're trying to achieve. Really, that's familiarity bias. Familiarity makes us like things better. We've mentioned this on the podcast before, like I mentioned, like radio stations use familiarity bias to their their advantage all the time. Like that's the, why they play the same 10 songs over and over and over again. When you tune into a radio station and you hear a song and then you tune in whatever 20 minutes later and the exact same song is on, the reason they do that is to kind of achieve familiarity bias with their listeners. They know that like if you as a listener hear the same song three times in one day, you're much more likely to end up actually liking that song. Uh, that's what the record labels want. They want to drive up the positive feelings about a song. So they want you to hear it multiple times in a day. The same kind of thing can happen with demos, except unintentionally. Like if you listen to your demo over and over and over and over and over again, it becomes super, super familiar and then your familiarity bias will cause you to think that that equals good, that that equals the best thing that that can be. And oftentimes, that's just not the case. Uh, and it can make recording processes really, really difficult. Do you run into that, Jake, with clients ever? I know, I mean, this is something that's so, so common. I'm sure you have. Yeah, yeah, all the time, all the time. And you know what? If they want to do it that way, you got to do it that way. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, this isn't necessarily meant as a criticism for people that we've worked with or anything like that. I've been part of projects where at a certain point we just said, well, if the demo's that good, let's just use the demo vocal. Oh, and dude, the, this happened to literally you and I, us. Yes, that's when, true. This <laughs> happened to a song that <laughs> that we did together. Yes. <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> that's so true i forgot about that yeah where the vocal that ended up on the release was the demo vocal even though we spent quite a bit of time trying to get a new vocal mm -hmm. that was as good as the demo vocal and it genuinely was the demo vocal genuinely was better though in that case i think yeah i think i think that's true i think it was but I mean, th there's there's also bias in play there too, because that comes down to 
the performance and the original performance that you did that you then listened to over and over and over yeah. again. So then you're trying to always chase that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So maybe if you had never done that demo, there would be a diff, a completely different performance. I don't know who's to say this is one of those things that like, it's a trap because like you're going to be familiar with the thing you've already done yeah. more than you are with the thing that you haven't done yet. So it's tricky, but I mean, that's not the only example of that. I've been part of like big record label release stuff that we've done that where it's been demo vocals recorded with like crappy gear in like bad little writing (laughs) rooms that are like not acoustically treated. That's what ends up on the record because like everybody got familiar with it. That's what they ended up liking. We decided we were chasing that more than we were trying to achieve something new and everybody agrees. Let's just put that on the record then. And that's okay, I think. But I think the point of all of this is that you have to be aware of that. You have to be aware that the more you listen to something, the more you hear something, the more likely you are to think that it's good. I mean, this this is another thing that comes back to mixing for me too, because the same thing happens for mixing for me. When I'm mixing, I try and listen to the song as few times as possible. And I think that's surprising to a lot of people. Like that sounds weird. Yeah, I just got surprised. <laughs> yeah, as a mixer, you're trying to listen to the song as few times as possible. I don't want to listen to the song over and over and over again because I know that the more I listen to it, the more I'm going to get married to a a specific sound. The more I'm going to think that what I've done is good. I try and mix as fast as possible. I try and mix as good as well as I possibly can, but I try and do that as fast as possible so that I don't bake all of these things into my mind and get stuck on them because I I will. I've done it. That's why I try and mix that way because I've done that a million times where I just I get like stuck on something. And I, so I think the same thing is true with everything else. Songwriting, demos, recording. Like you have to try and do things fairly fast so that you don't get stuck with demoitis. I think the last thing that kind of goes along with that is, again, just like with choice supportive bias, you have to be prepared to throw out any idea. Like you have to be okay with getting rid of something and not be married to any specific idea. That's ultimately what's happening with demoitis and with this familiarity bias. You're getting an emotional connection to something because it feels familiar. Since it feels familiar, it feels good. There's actually science behind this. Like if you're a hunter-gatherer or whatever out in the field, you're a caveman, and you come across a berry or something like that and you eat it and it doesn't make you sick. That's where familiarity bias kicks in. Now you know that this familiar berry that you found out there is safe to eat. So you, you're going to go back to that. You're going to feel more safe. You're going to feel more comfortable reaching for the thing that's familiar. And I think that really does kind of come into the psychology of all this. So whenever you're creating... And going through the process of making your music, you just have to keep that in your mind that the more you listen to something, the more likely you are to think that it's good, even when maybe that's not the best thing that it could possibly be. Do you have anything to add, Jake? You've summed it up perfectly. All right. So those are the main six types of cognitive bias that I think can really affect music careers overall. There, Like I said, there are a bunch more. If you just look up cognitive bias, I'm sure you're going to find lists and lists and lists of things. 
And I, I would encourage you to do that just because it, it, you might find things that are relatable to you, that you find yourself doing that we didn't mention here. These are the six that resonated the most with me, which is why I chose to discuss them, but I'm sure you can find more. If you guys find any more biases that you think apply to music or you think align with what you've experienced in this crazy industry, hit us up on uh, Instagram and let us know what that is. Or if you're not on Instagram, you can also shoot us an email at podcast at selfsignedartist.com. And hey, man, we're coming up on a year. We're coming up on a year. And for our first birthday, we're trying to do something spicy. So if you guys have any ideas or any topics you want covered, guests that you would like to see on, whatever, we're throwing a party. (laughs) We'll see you there. Make sure to leave a review. Make sure to tell a friend. Make sure to have a great week. And we'll see you next time. And that's all we've got for you on this episode. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Self-Signed Artist. Peace.